from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, in advance of Domestic and Sexual Violence Awareness Day at the Capitol later in the week, we'll have a special report and update on several bills aimed at helping survivors. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich joins me. Dave, those sweeping tax changes proposed by the Republican leadership in the uh, West Virginia Senate, Senate Joint Resolution 9, uh, was up for a vote today. Potential tax cuts on cars, machinery, equipment, inventory. Fill that in for us and tell us what happened. Right, so yesterday, as you remember, uh, they passed a bill uh, they needed this resolution to open up the Constitution to allow the changes proposed by that bill to take effect. And that bill was contingent upon this resolution passing. Uh, this was Senate Joint Resolution 9. Of course, as a joint resolution, a proposed constitutional amendment that would have had to, had to have cleared the Senate, the House, and then go to vote for ratification for voters. Um, you know, it, it needed 23 votes, two-thirds majority in the Senate. They got 18 of those 23 votes. Republicans uh, John Pitsenbarger and Bill Hamilton, both who represent the 11th district, um, voted against the bill, uh, joined the Democrats who were voting as a bloc to defeat it. And um, very dramatic remarks uh, by, by right. those who opposed, by those who supported it. Right. Republicans, of course, are, were kept saying over and over again, like, we want to put this in the hands of the people to let them decide. Um, and they, they definitely framed the conversation around the motor vehicle tax repeal uh, said that nobody wants to pay this tax. Um, but, you know, within the bill, this, this whole big plan was also the repeal of the manufacturer's uh, equipment uh, and inventory tax. Uh, we'll take a listen to some comments from Senate President Mitch Carmichael before the Senate put the Senate joint resolution up for a vote. And here he is speaking. That's the essence of the vote today. And the Senate Republicans, you see us gathered here, stand with the people of West Virginia. We trust the people of West Virginia to make decisions on the manner in which they will be taxed. And we believe that it's, uh, frankly, a height of arrogance to deny the people of West Virginia an opportunity to decide how to tax themselves. This is a tax cut for every West Virginian that drives an automobile. And so uh, this is an opportunity to put more money in the pockets of people of West Virginia. But beyond that, beyond the policy, it's really fundamentally about who do you trust? Do you trust the people of West Virginia or do we insert ourselves into the opportunity to say we're better than the people of West Virginia? We know better. We believe that's the wrong approach, that it's uh, the right approach is to trust the people of West Virginia to make the decisions on the manner in which they're taxed. Dave, there were tax increases in this proposal as well. Right, and there was a proposal to increase the tobacco tax, other uh, cigarettes, other tobacco products. 
uh, the consumer sales tax and some some e-cigarette vaping products. They needed to do that because it would have uh, the repeals on all this plan would have uh, over the course of this six-year phase out would have cost the state about three hundred million dollars in revenue. And so this, but the 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 tax increases on tobacco consumer sales, use cigarettes would have only made up for two hundred million of that. So Democrats had a had an argument that. You know, we're, we're, you're offering to, to backfill this, but it wouldn't have been enough. Um, I do want to point out, too, that, you know, this was heavily uh, lobbied for by the Manufacturers Association. Um, they said that, you know, it's, a, it's an onerous tax on the state's uh, manufacturing businesses and that if we repeal this, uh, we could also attract new businesses to the state. I spoke to Rebecca McPhail, who's the president of the West Virginia Manufacturers Association yesterday, and here's what she had to say about this whole plan. We've got our work cut out for us for Senate Joint Resolution 9, which we think will be taken up tomorrow since they laid it over for a day. Um, we're still optimistic. We think that there's an opportunity and we want to encourage uh, the senators to let the, let the West Virginia voters decide. You heard that a lot on the floor today, a lot of arguments, a lot of passion for the fact that this ultimately will be in the hands of West Virginia voters, that today's bill won't be effective without uh, a vote by our, our citizens to support it. But Dave, of course, the county commissioners have been here strong in opposition because all of this money, that $300 million, goes to uh, multiple services on the county level. Right. We heard about, you know, education being the big one. But over the course of remarks over the past few days, we heard about fire, EMS, all these programs that happen on the county level uh, being affected by that. And they, they came out, you know, in opposition to that. They, you saw assessors here around the Capitol speaking to lawmakers, trying to tell them how, how the repeal of this, uh, those tax repeals on the automobiles and the manufacturer's tax and the retail inventory, how that would have affected those counties and the programs that they had going on there. Um, I spoke with John, Jonathan Adler. He's the executive director of the West Virginia Association of Counties. And again, this was yesterday, as was the, the clip there from, uh, you know, Rebecca McPhail. But again, here's uh, Jonathan Adler of the West Virginia Counties Association. I think it just takes more talk again and just to understand, have a plan going forward together. I think that's the thing. We can all agree on some plan because we do want economic development in our counties, no doubt about it. We all want jobs, but we also don't want things being taken away from the counties as they have been for many years with no replacement revenue whatsoever. And of course, Suzanne, we heard from... You know, those that were in support of this bill that were one of the only states that lobbied for it or that, that have this uh, that have this tax on the books and it's very onerous. It keeps businesses out, um, you know, and, and the key thing about this is that tomorrow being crossover day, there's that deadline to get bills and joint resolutions over to the other side. So with this, you know, this bill and the resolution being tied together and that deadline up tomorrow, this this big tax overhaul plan is essentially dead in the water at this point. I mean, theoretically, there's some things that they could do, but given the votes that have happened over the course of the past two days, I think this plan, as it sits right now and as, as, the, as it's been conceived up to this point, is effectively dead. So. All right, Dave Mistich, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. <clears throat> According to the National Coalition of Domestic Violence, 33% of West Virginia women and 41% of West Virginia men experience intimate partner physical violence, sexual violence, and or stalking in their lifetime. We'll discuss legislation aimed at helping victims, but first, reporter Liz McCormick's visit with survivors and advocates in the Eastern Panhandle. Domestic violence can affect anyone female or male, young and old, 
And as these educational videos produced by the West Virginia Supreme Court illustrate, the violence can take many forms. It can be physical, psychological, emotional, or sexual. Sometimes the abuse is not obvious to the victim. Other times, victims may believe they have no options to escape their abusive situation. For victims, trying to understand what legal paths are available can be scary if you're going it alone. You're in a completely unknown situation. A lot of times you've lost your home or your, you know, where you're staying, your clothes, your money, your food, your vehicle, you've lost everything. Amy Thomas is a single mom from the Charleston area. Six years ago, Thomas and her two children, Brooke and Maverick, survived a domestic violence situation that resulted in Thomas being kidnapped and beaten by her abuser. Following the incident, Thomas got a protective or restraining order filed against the abuser. She also got custody of her children. She says it wasn't easy. You're panicked, you're frantic, you're in a horrible state of mind sometimes. That alone, you can't necessarily think about what you need to say and what you need to do on this paper. Um, the protective order alone is pretty thick. Then if you need to do um, a child custody or modification packet, that's another one that is enormous. And then to get the help you need, Thomas says you have to share your story over and over again with advocates, attorneys, judges, or law enforcement. And while it's important to do that, it can be emotionally taxing. So you're constantly reliving that trauma, the trauma that you lived. You're constantly reliving it every time that you have to talk about it. Thomas reached out to Legal Aid of West Virginia, a nonprofit law firm that provides free legal services to low-income individuals. It has 12 offices in West Virginia with about 60 legal aid attorneys. Supervising attorney Susanna Duart is one of them. She's based in Charleston. Duart helps people like Thomas navigate the state's legal system, which she admits is complicated. Once we become involved in that process, we can really um, explain what's going to happen. We can walk people through that process and they're going to be able to understand what's going to happen in a way that they otherwise would not have. Legal Aid will assign an attorney to help guide an individual through the paperwork, the legal jargon, and the court hearings. They can help to determine what, on the legal level, a person needs to find safety. We try to look holistically at the person in front of us to see what their, what their issues are, whether they've identified them or not, so that we can determine what legal solutions we might be able to bring to the table. Anyone can reach out directly to Legal Aid for help. But Duart says most of their clients come in the form of referrals from a licensed domestic violence program, like the Eastern Panhandle Empowerment Center in Martinsburg, serving Berkeley, Jefferson, and Morgan counties. The Empowerment Center is one of 14 licensed domestic violence programs across the state that serve all 55 counties. Each program offers individual safety planning, shelter, a 24-hour emergency hotline, legal advocacy, peer support counseling, and more. Katie Spriggs runs the program here, offering survivors like Amy Thomas resources and advice to take those first steps out of a domestic violence situation. I think it's important that they have an advocate who's well-trained, who has been through it multiple times and can walk with them through it, and just so that they know they're not alone and they have a constant support system. Spriggs says each domestic violence program in West Virginia deals with varying issues depending on location. For example, in the Eastern Panhandle, Spriggs says they receive a higher number of human trafficking calls than other parts of the state. She attributes it to their geographical location and quick access to highways. 
but she says the majority of calls across the state are still for violence in the home. So we still serve more victims of domestic violence. Oftentimes, though, they intersect with other crimes. So there's also a stalking component. There also might be a harassment component. Usually, when we identify human trafficking, that's happening because a victim comes in for services that they believe is domestic violence or sexual assault. But the more that they get to talking, the more that we identify that this is actually human trafficking. The West Virginia Coalition Against Domestic Violence was formed in Elkview almost 40 years ago to connect programs like the Empowerment Center in Martinsburg to other programs in the state, creating a single network focused on combating domestic violence. Joyce Yedlowski is one of two team coordinators for the coalition. So we kind of see ourselves as a statewide collective voice for the programs that serves the, the survivors. And ultimately, you know, we really come at it from the fact that we try to be voices for survivors. The coalition's mission is to spread awareness of state and federal resources. The organization also takes concerns to the West Virginia legislature to help lawmakers understand what policies may need changed or strengthened to better help survivors. Yedlowski says strides have been made in recent years to better protect survivors, like the Sexual Assault Victims Bill of Rights that passed the West Virginia legislature in 2019. She also cites those West Virginia Supreme Court videos available on YouTube that help domestic violence survivors better understand how to navigate the state's legal system. But Yedlowski says prevention is the next step. So our prevention efforts, many of them are in our schools, um, but we also need to get out more into, into our our communities and working with prevention and changing our mindset about what we think about domestic violence and where it come from comes from and how it is a societal and a community issue not just an individual party issue. Yedlowski says the state's domestic violence programs receive two and a half million dollars annually from the West Virginia legislature, but she's planning to request an additional $500,000 this session for prevention services to be split among the 14 programs. She also hopes there will be more discussion on how to better serve rural areas. For survivor Amy Thomas, she's hopeful the legislature considers creating a domestic violence registry, similar to the state's sex offender registry. She's also hopeful the legislature will strengthen punishments for those who break a protective order. For the legislature today, I'm Liz McCormick. An estimated one-third of homicides in West Virginia are related to domestic violence. Earlier today, I spoke with Delegate Sammy Brown of Jefferson County, a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Brown discussed successful domestic violence legislation, but says there's still much to be done. Delegate Brown, thank you so much for being here. You have been very involved with the issue of domestic and sexual violence. Uh, we just shared with you our video story from Martinsburg, and you're very familiar with the women and the work of the Empowerment Center. Let's just begin with some, um, your thoughts about the crime, the alarming rate of assault in West Virginia, and, and what uh, you know the work to be um, of these domestic violence shelters. Absolutely, so the culture here in West Virginia, I think that the top lines really speak to a familial unit, having a faith-based system, um, and, and really the sense of community. But what's being swept under the rug is potentially some of the diminutive language that's used 
towards, um, I'll say, marginalized communities as a whole. And what that has culminated in is an inordinate amount of violence. Um, I'm seeing it everywhere from uh, young ages uh, all the way through uh, adulthood um, and then relationships as a whole. We're finding there's this abusive component and additionally we're not addressing the core of systemic rape culture and so we've now not addressed an epidemic that's happening in our state i could argue across the country but i'm rooted here you believe there are uh, presuppositions uh, about not only victims but perpetrators talk about that well there's a power dynamic of course and then so when you have the the victim and um assailant relationship the idea is that the victim somehow solicited this violence that it's their doing and when we address this even through our criminal justice system there's an implicit bias towards the victim or survivor and so we're not actually getting to the core of justice because there's already this mindset in place that's permeated um, the very system that's supposed to find us closure and justice and a lot of the policy that I've advocated for, that I've worked on, that I've amended to be um, holistic and really go after those core values is, uh, is rooted in that concept. Uh, talking about um, the receptiveness of this conversation here at the Capitol, uh, you have said it is not a very prevalent conversation and not a pleasant one, mm -hmm. um, but it is moving slightly it in is. the right direction. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, I am dogged when it comes to these policies because I know it's necessary. I know that if we're not attacking it now, uh, we'll, we'll never get to the real uh, to the real core of this issue. So uh, it's been my entire first term. Uh, we're now in our second year. We're now at the tail end of my second session. And it has been that entire time uh, really going after these issues uh, to adjust law to reflect the problem in the state. I know we have opportunities here. I know that there's there's real systemic change that we can make, and if we can do that incrementally, I know we're going to be able to save lives. Let's go over some of those pieces of legislation. Already successful, this session, House Bill 4476, this bill would require a quick turnaround in testing and collection of rape kits. Um, it, is, it is in front of the governor to sign. Describe the situation that this bill addresses, which is really shocking, and it's a scenario, again, across the country. Yes, so, and the backlog was a bill that I pursued immediately upon uh, coming into legislature. This year, we got all of the stakeholders, brought them to the table, and we were ready to address this in a way that could, that could be implemented in a quick and efficient way. The issue was that survivors of assault would go through the evasive procedure of getting tested so they could have evidentiary support in seeking justice. But we weren't turning around those kits. That is an inherent injustice. Not turning around. Some of those kits have been there a couple decades, You've we found. Got it. You've got it. In and West Virginia, a couple decades. Acceptable to me. So here we are with individuals that said, I'm going to be brave enough to go to the hospital, get myself tested, submit 
this support and we're not coming through for them as a government. And actually many of the victims thought that well, of course, they're being tested. Yes. But there, there would be years and years of hearing nothing. But they're being held. So in this piece of legislation, not only was it a promise to get these tests, uh, get the kits tested, but then we have a system in which it's to be done. And then on the floor, I amended in language that is about victim notification so that not only are you seeing that these tests are being taken seriously, but that the victim themselves can track the progress. I want to talk about two uh, bills that are still pending in judiciary. Uh, House Bill 4592 extending periods of reporting assaults. What would that do? Well, very wait. briefly. Statute of limitations. Uh, it extends the period of time in which uh, your evidentiary support, that your uh, complaint, if you will, can be brought forward and uh, be prosecuted. And with crossover day tomorrow, what does the fate of this bill look like? Well, uh, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm hoping for the very best. Um, there has been a lot of support from the chairman. Uh, I'm, I'm actually very proud to work with him on a number of pieces of legislation around criminal justice reform. I'm hoping we can make this a priority as well. You also have spoken about the tracking bill 4199 what would that do well the tracking in and of itself would um, make sure that we have uh, a system in place that allows for us uh, to know where our process is if we're seeking justice we should know where we are in that judicial process if we're going to be uh, putting ourselves and our and our personal well-being through litigation well then you should know that there's progress being made and again, that's been parked in Judiciary, House Judiciary, since January 14th. Again, the fate is, is very questionable at you got this it. point. You got it. But uh, that being said, uh, I'm not someone that uh, shies away from a fight. So if it's not this session, it will come back regardless. We know that the West Virginia Domestic Violence Coalition um, is, is lobbying for stricter gun laws. Now, when was the last time that West Virginia passed a more restricted <laughs> gun law. Uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, definitely not. And we know a significant, uh, we do want to say that a significant portion of these domestic violence deaths in West Virginia mm. are at the hands of a, a firearm. Right, so uh, firearms, deadly weapons as a whole, and then uh, the law isn't really extended for those of us that are trying to protect ourselves. So that's really the problem there in uh, possessing any any uh, firearm or, or what's deemed a, a deadly weapon through law. Um, the reality is, and, and mind you, uh, that coalition has been a wonderful ally of mine, um, but this legislature um, and previous ones uh, prior to my election, that's not been the case so far. In fact, the argument has been made that um, us having expansive uh, gun laws would actually keep women safe. At this point, I would have to disagree. Um, I do feel that while protecting, protecting Second Amendment rights, the language is not in place through code, through law right now, that also protects the individual that's trying to uh, keep themselves safe. So again, it's that power dynamic that we have not fully addressed through all of West Virginia law. In the story that we've shared uh, from Martinsburg, uh, there was a request by the survivor for a domestic violence registry. And we know that Delegate Mike Pushkin of Kanawha County did indeed on day one introduce a bill that would have implemented a domestic violence registry. It's gone nowhere. Right. It, it, it was uh, 
sent to judiciary, House Judiciary, mm -hmm. where it has been the entire session. It's been parked. You got Why it. is that important? Why, why, how would that help victims? In the same way that uh, sexual assault registry uh, is indicative of the culture right now, it lets folks know that there is there is a history of this that is far more prevalent than uh, we're willing to ignore or to acknowledge right now. And I think it's important um, in so many ways to have transparency and accountability. This is this is absolutely one of those ways to do so. Um, I know the delegate from uh, Kanala has has also been uh, a really great ally and a champion in those issues with me, um, and I appreciate his efforts, but we're also going to have to double down to make sure that these are a priority in the next uh, couple of years. It's going to take some time. In the half a moment that we have left, you want an affirmative consent bill. That's something you're working on. A half a minute. Give a give us a, a reason why. Again, uh, going back to that power dynamic. So this is on higher education um, institutions in West Virginia. What right. would it What would it mandate of the institution? Well, it would mandate of the institution that you acknowledge that there is. Uh, a player A and a player B, and uh, these these acts are not consensual unless there is an audible yes in the conversation. Um, consent does absolutely indicate uh, a, a a yes in this in this scenario. Along with that bill, um, you we also address language around uh, stalking and harassment, and that's why uh, it's again very important to put forward comprehensive legislation like that to address. Uh, some of the uh, disparities within law right now. So we can have a conversation about what it means to carry uh, a deadly weapon. We can we can have a conversation about what it means to implement two-way rights, but we can't have that, especially in a violence dynamic or, or a culture that is truly indicative of rape culture without addressing what it means to uh, respect one another's space and, and autonomy. Delegate Sammy Brown of Jefferson County, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For resources, information, or help, there is a National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. Tomorrow in the legislature today, as we reach day 50 of this 60-day session, we'll speak with senior members of the Senate Health and Human Resources Committee about health concerns and initiatives this session. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a good evening.